Welcome to the Energy Policy Now podcast from the Kleinman Center for Energy Policy at the University of Pennsylvania. I'm Andy Stone. Last Friday, February the 19th, the United States officially rejoined the Paris Climate Agreement, bringing to an end an extended period of national disengagement from the global effort to address climate change. The U.S. has been welcomed back into the Paris fold. As the largest historic emitter of greenhouse gases and today's second largest emitter behind China, U.S. engagement is critical to the global effort to address climate change. Yet the climate framework that the U.S. abandoned under the Trump administration looks different today. The U.S., rather than being a clear leader on climate issues, is now embarking on an effort to rebuild trust and reassure the world that it will remain committed to addressing climate change. And the U.S. is returning at a time when the relative influence of China, Europe, and other regions has grown in global climate dialogue. Here to discuss how the Paris climate framework has changed in recent years and the challenges this may pose for the U.S. as it re-engages is Joanna Lewis. Joanna is director of the Science, Technology, and International Affairs Program at Georgetown University. She is also a strategic advisor to the China Energy Group at Lawrence Berkeley National Lab. Joanna, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. Could you start us out by introducing us to your work on international collaboration to address climate change? Sure. Um, well, throughout my career, I've been working on projects with international collaborators, um, and particularly in China, where I've worked for about two decades now. Um, and now as a professor and researcher, I have built upon my own experience in this area and actually study cooperation um, in the climate change area, both technical cooperation and political cooperation and the interaction between the two. So, um, and I also am, am always continuing to look for constructive ways to engage, particularly the US and China through running dialogues that bring together members of the research think tank and NGO communities in both countries. U.S.-China bilateral cooperation was critical to the development and finalization of the Paris Climate Agreement back in 2015. Uh, why were the U.S. and China so important at that time? Well, the, the U.S. and China always play an important role, you know, first and foremost, because essentially these are the two largest global emitters of greenhouse gas emissions. Um, the United States, of course, always has significant global influence. Um, and China in particular in the past has been um, extremely important as a leader of the developing world or the G77, um, particularly in the context of the international climate negotiations. So you have countries really turning to both countries, uh, both China and the United States on the climate issue. Uh, and you know, China and the United States have many common interests when it comes to climate change but don't always see eye to eye on the right approach to take. So when agreement can be reached, that's even more significant and that reverberates globally. Well, you bring up that point that the US and China don't always see eye to eye and that's very clear today, but looking back at those, those years leading up to the finalization of the, of the Paris Climate Agreement, can you talk about the US-Chinese uh, diplomacy and cooperation uh, that, that was going on at that time that allowed the two countries to work together bilaterally to really get the agreement pushed forward? Sure. So in U.S.-China cooperation on clean energy and climate science and, and a variety of technical fields goes back decades. Um, but it was really the Obama administration that ushered in a new era of climate and energy cooperation between China and the United States, um, you know, both in terms of enhanced technical cooperation, 
as well as, you know, exciting initiatives to pursue joint R&D, such as the U.S.-China Clean Energy Research Center, um, and and also the first real high-level political engagement through the Climate Change Working Group. So I think there were a few key reasons that they were able to come together, um, that China and the U.S. were able to come together in the lead-up to the Paris Agreement. First of all, neither country wanted a repeat of Copenhagen. So this was the the climate negotiations that took place the end of 2009, um, which, you know, is really the most fascinating cop I've ever observed. It was a real disappointment, right? Yeah. I mean, it was really just a breakdown in the process. I I was, you know, lucky enough to to get to be in the building all night uh, watching the process break down at three in the morning. You know, you had a situation where leaders showed up um, you know, at the conference with nothing to sign there, you know, there was no nice photo op instead having to famously, you know, really roll up their sleeves, chase each other all over the convention center. It was not something anyone expected. And, and I think China in particular got a lot of the blame and and backlash in the media after the Copenhagen summit. And so really didn't want a repeat of that. So had an incentive to engage with the U S and, and essentially avoid any surprises the next time around. Um, you know, second, I think, again, leading up to Paris, there was a much stronger understanding of the emissions trends on both sides, which was directly a result of the technical cooperation that had been scaling up between the two countries since 2008 in the climate and energy space. You know, there were many exchanges that took place um, over that time period to really look at the models, the inventories, and, and build mutual understanding and trust. You know, I think people who who don't work in China don't necessarily understand the amazing capacity that has been built in just the past decade or so on climate change. I mean, I recall one of my early jobs um, working with Lawrence Berkeley National Lab back in 2001, 2002, was essentially to camp out um, with some of China's uh, main energy modelers and, you know, get to know them, learn about what they were doing, where the data gaps are so that we could ben, you know, better structure and form our, our collaboration. And it was really, you know, about capacity building. Um, it was just a different world in terms of capacity then and now. And so, you know, now there are world-class research researchers and think tanks and institutes in the universities in China, you know, a new generation of scholars with really deep expertise in this field. And with that comes just much more confidence to be able to make international pledges that, um, you know, the government can actually feel confident in the numbers that are put forward. So I think it's really a combination of the scaled up communication and collaboration with deeper understanding and trust that allowed things like the 2014 joint agreement um, on climate change between the U.S. and China to take place. Um, But, you know, I think this was not just limited to Paris during this time period. This collaboration led to key agreements to be reached on aviation emissions, um, on the phase out of HFCs through the Kigali Amendment to the Montreal Protocol. And, you know, these were all issues where China was very reluctant to move until it became a key topic of, you know, not just bilateral engagement between China and the U.S., but really presidential level conversations. Um, And so, again, in those years leading up to Paris, you saw in almost every joint statement that would come out between Presidents Xi and Obama would mention the incremental progress that was being reached on a variety of issues on climate change. Um, And I think really a shared understanding of the power of this G2 relationship to leverage global climate cooperation. Were there specific issues 
that the United States and China were, were very much in agreement on going into the finalization of the Paris Agreement? And were there particular sticking points at that point? Well, I think, you know, the most important change in the international climate regime um, from, I guess, through the Kyoto Protocol to the Paris Agreement was really this move away from a bifurcation between developed and developing countries. Um, you know, you, you know the phrase common but differentiated responsibilities, which is really core to the Framework Convention and, and also is mentioned in the Paris Agreement. And really this thinking of what that means and how that plays out in reality was something that for a long time, I think China and the United States didn't agree on, but were able to find some common ground through the model, which is, um, you know, implemented in the Paris Agreement of, of NDCs, essentially climate pledges that are self-designed, you know, by the countries themselves. Um, and this really allowed, um, you know, China and the U.S. and then the rest of the industrialized and developing world to follow on to really, you know, agree with this sort of new model for international climate cooperation, where it wasn't just that the developed countries took pledges and the developing countries sat by and watched, but everyone took action in line with their respective capacity. And, and, and that was what was really important because, you know, as we know, an, a global climate agreement is really ineffective if you don't include all the major emitters and have, um, you know, countries like China, India, Brazil at the table, which we didn't under Kyoto and we do now in Paris. So I think that was one area where we really were able to find common ground. But, um, you know, there remain still many, many areas where there are disagreement. I mean, a big one over the years has been in in this area of transparency or how we assess um, progress towards meeting pledges about data and information and, and just really different thinking um, between China and the United States about how that process should look and, you know, what sort of the role is of, um, you know, national sovereignty versus a more internationally transparent process. In the beginning of 2017, Obama leaves office, Trump comes in as the new president, and shortly thereafter makes it clear that the United States is going to leave the Paris process. How did the U.S. disengagement from Paris change the balance of power? Who, who comes in to fill the, the U.S.'s void? And is there a change in priorities that results from the U.S.'s disengagement? Well, the first thing I'd mention um, is that the United States did not fully disengage. Um, this was somewhat of a gradual process. You know, they were still involved in the negotiations. The delegation was still there. Um, but, uh, you know, U.S. engagement did open the door, disengagement opened the door for a new set of non-state actors to be increasingly more engaged in the international process, uh, many of whom had been, you know, engaged in the domestic process for a long time. So people like former California Governor Jerry Brown, former New York City Mayor Mike Bloomberg became increasingly engaged at the international level. Um, you know, you saw, particularly in Brown's case in California, getting more engaged in bilateral cooperation, um, and in Bloomberg's case, in really rallying the subnational actors across the United States and the businesses to really, you know, remind the world that we are still in, was what, you know, they referred to this movement as, um, which was just renamed um, on Friday, America is all in, I believe. So, you know, I, I think there was still definitely a vacuum, of course, at the leader level, and much of the official bilateral engagement between China and the United States was either halted or greatly diminished in scope. 
um, you know, during the Trump administration. And so we did see other countries step in, particularly the EU um, and the leaders of, of Germany and France in particular ramped up their bilateral engagement with China. Of course, you know, they had always been there as an important partner. And in fact, the EU has spent, spent far more money on bilateral climate and energy cooperation with China than the United States has. But it's really a different model of cooperation with different motivations and different limitations. I mean, there's it's it can be hard to get agreement across the EU, doesn't always speak with one voice. Um, and, you know, they have been very involved, particularly at the working level on things like the design of China's emissions trading system, of course, which um, has some similarities to the European system. Um, and then more recently on the pursuit of a mid-century carbon neutrality goal. So I think it's valuable that um, the EU was able to have these conversations, you know, with China at a time when the U.S. leaders were not able to have them. Um, and, you know, just one more point on leadership. I, I remember there was a lot of excitement that when the U.S., you know, initially announced it was withdrawing from Paris, that this would finally be China's chance to step up and become a global climate leader internationally. Um, but this was never really likely and didn't quite come to fruition, you know, I, I think, because to be fair, there are always sort of two Chinas when it comes to climate change. There's the one that drags their feet a bit in the international negotiations, claiming that, you know, as a developing country, they they shouldn't be required to take the same actions as, as countries like the U.S., but... Um, but then you still have the China that is simultaneously implementing domestic policies to position themselves to become the global clean energy leader, for example. So, you know, I think China's always been what I call a, a reluctant leader on the international stage and their climate negotiating position always lags what they're actually legislating domestically. So, you know, again, while we see increasing confidence from China's leadership to think big on climate change, I mean, I thought it was very striking that we saw China's president last September announce a big climate goal in a very, very public way. You know, that's not something we would have seen a Chinese leader do just a few years ago. Um, but this doesn't translate into China playing an active role in necessarily, um, you know, leading the developing world in the the, the framework convention. Um, and, you know, of course, they are still actively selling coal plants to the, the developing world. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that. I think the question I want to ask really here is, is, is can you define leadership in a sense when we're talking about the global climate effort? Because look, you've got China, as you just mentioned, is building, I think it's 250 gigawatts, a pipeline of 250 gigawatts of, of domestic coal plants, uh, you know, financing uh, fossil fuel development overseas through the Belt and Road Initiative. The United States is back, but it has proven itself to be an unreliable partner within the global climate context, first with Kyoto, and now with Paris, and then you have EU, the EU, which has been very aggressive, right? I think it's got the, the you know the the goal now of reducing emissions by fifty five percent by the end of this decade. So you've got these three big global entities, but they all look very different. What does leadership actually mean then, uh, you know, in, in this global context? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. I mean. I think the biggest problem is that countries don't tend to legislate on timescales needed to deal with long-term existential threats like climate change. Um, you know, in the United States, things change every four years, um, and some countries even more frequently than that. And in some ways, China is actually one of the most long-term thinkers due to their political system, which 
thrives on, you know, five-year plans and the mid and long-term plans as well. So they've always had targets for things that extend out decades. Um, and in the U.S., we don't tend to do that. So, you know, I think um, mid-century goals are very important for the signals they send. You know, they're not sufficient. And if the Chinese president can announce a 2060 carbon neutrality goal one week and then the next week, you know, an official approves 100 gigawatts of new coal construction. How do you reconcile these two things? Um, because you can't actually get to carbon neutrality in 2060 if you're building coal plants today in 2021. These things, you know, run for half a century. Um, so, you know, I think that this is this is something countries are grappling with right now, and and it just has to do with um, the the fact that these real kind of domestic drivers are not always in line with the role that countries would like to play at the global level. Well, you you recently wrote in a paper I think that came out at the end of 2020. You wrote that, uh, and this is kind of a paraphrase here, that China's Belt and Road Initiative is the most important shift in China's economic and foreign policy over the last decade, and it's also the biggest gap to our bilateral cooperation. I think that's bilateral cooperation between U.S. and China. Can you tell us a little bit more how the Belt and Road Initiative is complicating the international effort to address climate change, particularly at this point with the U.S. re-engaging? Well, I think, you know, right now on, on the Belt and Road Initiative, the United States has essentially just stayed out of it, right? Has essentially stood by and watched and, and put very little pressure on China. Uh, I think there is just a huge opportunity for the United States to engage China in a variety of ways. I mean, first of all, you know, the United, this is not just about Belt and Road. You know, China is playing an increasingly important role in the entire, um, you know, international financing of infrastructure and particularly energy infrastructure. You know, should we be bringing China more into the fold in the multilateral development banks where it's playing an increasingly important role like the World Bank? Um, you know, should the United States join um, the Asian Infrastructure Bank, you know, where we again decided to kind of sit back um, because this is an area, again, where you can have these conversations? Uh, or, you know, should we be talking more about a direct U.S.-led approach to engaging many of the countries where China is investing and essentially you know, either countering that investment or even looking for ways to leverage that investment towards cleaner projects. So I think there are a lot of really good ideas about there, out there about how China, uh, about how the United States can work strategically with partners and use public and private investments to change the calculation for recipient countries. Um, and this has to be done, you know, in part through our uh, sort of bilateral strategy, but also through, you know, much broader international forums where we engage. You know, I wanted to address kind of the, the, the internal political situation uh, in China and how that influences, um, you know, what they can and cannot do on climate. Um, and there's an interesting little point um, that China is, has this pipeline of about 250 gigawatts of coal plants the coal plants that it has right now are um, not working at full capacity, not even close to it. Um, so, so you've got this build out of fossil fuel units. Um, they're not being used to start out with. Is this really kind of a public works project? Uh, and does China not really intend to use these plants, particularly because renewables have become so cheap? What, what, what's your sense of that? Yeah, this is, a, I think, a really important question. I mean, I think the political economy of the low carbon energy transition in China is 
really quite complex. Um, you know, it's easy to sort of look at things that China's doing in the clean energy space, which are really, you know, can be quite impressive and dramatic and, um, and then look at what's happening on the fossil side and, and not, you know, be able to reconcile these two things. But we have to remember that, you know, China is still, uh, it's an economy that was built on coal, it still runs primarily on coal. You know, the coal companies in China, which are heavily state-owned, state-invested, are extremely powerful entities still. And I mean, I mentioned that because, you know, we talk a lot in this country about the just transition, um, you know, really encompassing, again, not just the technology transition, but the transition of local economies, you know, of jobs, of, you know, how do you retrain people who spent their careers working in a coal mine to, you know, put, install a solar panel on, on someone's roof, right? It's, it's, you have winners and losers in this country. And in China, this is just a much, much more um, massive problem because it's not just about, you know, how you facilitate a transition to cleaner um, energy, you know, that's equitable, but it's, it's about avoiding civil unrest that could result from mass layoffs, which could threaten the overall stability of the country. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's, I think, this really fundamental issue that China's leadership is grappling with, where, you know, I think they understand the necessity of the transition. And of course, you know, in China, climate change is very inherently linked to local environmental problems. It's linked to um, just, you know, overall inefficiencies in the economy. A lot of what, you know, they need to achieve to make this happen are, it's not just about, you know, deploying wind turbines. It's about major structural reforms <laughs> to um, really, you know, remove inefficiencies in the economy, you know, corruption, um, more market signals, you know, and these are all things that you can kind of do, you know, in terms of window dressing, but until you get at kind of these fundamental issues, you're never going to be able to do them in a, in a really effective and holistic way. There's an interesting quote from John Kerry that appeared in Political recently. Kerry is the U.S. Special Envoy for, uh, for Climate. He said that climate leadership brings with it, and I quote, an unprecedented wealth creation opportunity. Uh, end quote. And this is in the context of, for example, the EU's welcoming the U.S. back to the Paris framework. But the EU has also made it clear that it intends to redouble its efforts to compete against the U.S., China, uh, and others in climate technologies in, and infrastructure. So given that, to what extent might competition for the economic spoils of climate leadership interfere with climate collaboration? Well, I think it's important to realize, you know, we're not going to be able to get the innovation we need in the clean energy space without competition. I mean, we have seen firsthand how when you protect markets and remove competition like China did when it first grew its wind industry or, or its solar industry, that there will be a lot of poorly performing products. And so in that sense, competition, you know, can be a good thing. Um, and I think we also need to think more strategically as a society, how to balance our desire to, you know, build clean energy industries domestically and, and create local jobs with the need to deploy these technologies as quickly and cheaply as possible globally if we're going, you know, to be serious about a, a low carbon transition and, and addressing climate change. 
um, in this, in, you know, the next decade. And so it's a no brainer that the U.S. needs to invest more in clean energy innovation. Um, but I think it's not so much a question of, you know, we are falling behind China. And so this is a, a competitiveness strategy to catch up. I, I think it's that, you know, the United States brings unique knowledge and expertise to this industry and the world will benefit from the U.S. being more involved in developing new technologies and bringing them to the market and from the U.S. building more experience, um, you know, with clean energy development and, and deployment here. So, you know, we are still the leading innovator in the world um, and we should be more actively entering this industry just as we are scaling up innovation in artificial intelligence, biotech, and other areas. So five years ago, uh, trade relations between the United States and China were, you know, significantly better than they they, they were today. They were, they were easier. Uh, now we have, you know, are coming out of several years of, of really intense tensions between the two countries. Um, how has that in, intensified, uh, you, know, you know, trade, th these trade issues, how might they impact the ability for the United States and China and other countries as well to work together, particularly collaboration on new technologies where you've got IP concerns, you've got competitiveness concerns. Do the trade tensions that we've recently come through make that all more difficult? Well, I think trade tensions are, are certainly not going to disappear with the Biden administration and if anything, you know, may get worse. Um, but I do think what can change for the better um, in contrast with the prior administration is just the approach. You know, under Obama, um, we were working both collaboratively and punitively with China on trade simultaneously. And, you know, we, uh, if the United States is, is going to demand things like, you know, better intellectual property rights protection, better market access, these are actually areas where China needs to still build capacity, particularly, you know, in the provinces, which still lag behind Western market conditions and where we still see widespread corruption, including in the clean energy industry. So it's not just as easy as the Chinese government saying, yes, we will stop stealing your intellectual property or we'll open our markets. You know, in many cases, you have a, a situation where Beijing would actually like this to happen because it's also in their own self-interest, but it's a, a long haul to get the entire country up to speed. Um, and, you know, and of course, I want to separate this from the issue of state sanctioned technology theft, which is important, but I think a separate issue from the broader trade concerns between our countries. You've you've also written uh, that um, climate action can be a negotiating lever for trade agreements uh, with the U.S. So, uh, uh, for example, a country um, that wants to trade with the United States might have to eliminate, for example, fossil fuel subsidies as as what it must do before engaging in, in that trade with the United States. How do you view this in terms of climate becoming a trade policy tool itself? Well, I think this is really an evolving area, you know, internationally. I mean, I think we really do see this um, emerging tension between countries' desire to, you know, build domestic clean energy industries and, and doing that in a way that employs protectionist policies that can come into um, direct conflict with international trade law. Um, and then we see explicit, you know, trade instruments being discussed um, in the EU now and previously in the U.S., things like carbon border adjustments yeah. or, you know, border tax adjustments. And, and you know, I think these are, are really interesting, you know, because on the surface, 
Um, these are powerful tools that are targeted at countries with less stringent environmental standards, um, you know, primarily emerging developing countries. And, and of course, China as a big exporter of energy intensive goods could be a big target of, of a, a carbon um, border adjustment. Um, you know, back when the U.S. Congress was discussing various cap-and-trade legislation. Um, almost all of them included some form of carbon border adjustment, um, you know, which was often referred to as a, sort of the China provision. Um, but China, you know, is also in the process of implementing what will be the world's largest emissions trading system, which is slated to cover these industrial sectors. And so, you know, you could imagine, for example, in the case of China and the EU, if they could come to an agreement, um, that it could be the case that China's domestic policy could actually f fulfill the conditions of the border adjustment, you know, essentially meet the carbon standard you'd be mm. applying at the border for traded goods. So, and this is obviously best case scenario, um, you know, as and the worst case would be, you know, just a, a kind of ever deteriorating trade war. But I, I do think that um, climate policy opens up new opportunities to think about trade policy um, and, and, there's not enough, I think, um, appreciation for the overlap between these two areas. Now, I want to jump forward to uh, the big event that's happening this year, which is obviously uh, COP26 in Glasgow, which will take place in November. Um, the U.S. is back in Paris now, and President Biden is clearly working to rebuild U.S. climate credibility, uh, you know, following our disengagement from Paris. Um, to what extent... Can the United States be in a position of leadership at Glasgow, again, considering that we're just back uh, and, and, you know, the world has changed? Yeah, I mean, I think a couple points. Um, you know, first of all, as I mentioned, um, I do think it's actually valuable that even though the United States um, formally, you know, withdrew from the Paris Agreement that you still had U.S. negotiators at the table for the last several years. Um, you know, you had a U.S. delegation actively participating in the U.N. process, um, and they essentially had the perspective that they wanted to continue to make the process as strong as possible for a time when the U.S. would eventually rejoin. Um, and so I don't know if this is fully appreciated. You know, I don't think you had um, you know, career diplomats essentially working to undermine the Paris Agreement. In fact, you know, really quite the opposite. I mm -hmm. think there was always this presumption the U.S. would rejoin at some point, and so it would be important to make sure that the details of the agreement, you know, many of which were negotiated after 2015, um, you know, the Paris rulebook, uh, detailed, uh, you know, agreements surrounding issues like transparency, and these are things, you know, where you actually saw the U.S.-China dynamic continue to play an important role in, in finalizing finalizing the details of this agreement. So I do think this actually puts the United States in a good position to re-engage. And, um, you know, the timing couldn't be better with respect to Glasgow. Um, you know, this is the COP by which countries were supposed to announce two important things. You know, first, their new NDC, their new climate pledge, um, as well as mid-century goals. And, and of course, this was supposed to happen last year, which would have been horrible timing, actually, uh, you know, either during or right after the U.S. election, what with Trump still in charge, you know, but of course, now due to the, the COVID pandemic, it was postponed a year. Um, <clears throat> so this gives Bi the Biden administration really almost a year now to prepare for COP26. And I think that will include a combination of getting their domestic house in order, and conducting extensive international outreach and diplomacy. 
Um, and of course, um, you know, President Biden has announced this Earth Day summit um, coming up, which will put a marker in the ground, really telling all countries they should show up to the summit with something, you know, hopefully something more than they've already announced. And, you know, and that also puts countries like China sort of indirectly in the spotlight here because they've already announced this mid-century goal, this 2060 carbon neutrality target, and they've announced the outlines of their new climate pledge. And while they're all steps in the right direction, they're likely not enough to get the world on a, on a fully net zero pathway by mid-century. So, you know, the Biden administration is clearly already hard at work on both the U.S. target and on international engagement. And I think presuming the U.S. will be in a position to announce something strong in April in, in terms of what we're going to do domestically, that will go a long way towards restoring global goodwill. Um, but of course, that, you know, whatever is announced in terms of the, the U.S.'s Paris pledge has to be backed by real domestic policy. And that will be harder. You know, it was far too easy for Trump to erase the Obama era climate policy. And, and I think the Biden administration will at least try to avoid that happening again. The United States has a uh, commitment uh, to reduce its emissions by 26 to 28 percent by uh by 2025 under the first uh, NDC under Paris. What happens with that? We're way off track from reaching that. Do we get kind of a pass on that if we're aggressive towards 2030? How does that work? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think that, again, it's this, it's this constant kind of balance between the near-term and the long-term targets, you know, the political signals that that sends. So, I mean, I think that the United States... Um, you know, is actually now not as far off as they might have been just because of the the economic recession, um, which, you know, obviously is not a good thing, but um, is can be better for emissions. Um, but yes, I do think it's much more important to be forward thinking and to show to the world that we have the instruments in place, um, you know, to, to really make progress um, towards reducing domestic emissions. You know, before we finish up here, I wanted to ask uh, ask you about one other area of U.S. engagement, and, and that's cooperation, climate cooperation outside of the Paris framework, such as through the Clean Energy Ministerial, where the U.S. is also poised to reengage. What are the roles of these other types of international engagement in making progress on climate? Yeah, I, I do think it's important to remember that while the Paris Agreement is important, it's just one forum that we have to engage multilaterally on climate change. And and if you've ever witnessed a climate negotiation, you know that getting, you know, 200 countries to agree on something can be a very heavy lift. So, you know, and in fact, many things can be better addressed, at least initially in a smaller grouping of countries. And and we have several such platforms already. We have the, the Major Economies Forum. Um, and whatever it may be rebranded as, you know, maybe going forward, as well as um, things like the Clean Energy Ministerial, Mission Innovation, these all focus on different aspects of the climate problem and can help to facilitate discussion in a different way than, than the UN. Um, and these are forums that can also bring in different actors. So, you know, not climate negotiators necessarily, but energy ministers, finance ministers, and um, and then, of course, we also have ways, you know, to now many processes for subnational engagement, non-state actors, um, and to bring them into the discussion, which is extremely important. So I am sure the Biden team is looking at all these processes to decide where to re-engage or where to rebrand or, you know, where to kind of let things lie. Um, but many of the things I mentioned were actually U.S., you know, created um, 
processes. And so we did see value in them then and likely will now, or at least in, in something similar. So, you know, one, for example, mission innovation was about, and this was announced, um, you know, at the time the Paris Agreement was signed, it was about coordinating research and development pledges to scale up global clean energy innovation, which is a good thing. I think we can all agree, you know, but the United States didn't meet our pledge to essentially double our investment. Um, now we could. Uh, you know, China, in fact, did meet their pledge, um, it looks like, to double their government um, R&D spending on clean energy by 2020. Um, they essentially doubled their investment from four to eight billion dollars, which would put it officially ahead of, of what we've, we're spending right now in the United States. Um, and R&D and, and clean energy actually did go up um, under Trump, uh, you know, despite efforts to, to try to prevent that from happening. So, you know, I think you can either frame... China surpassing the U.S. in clean energy innovation dollars is, again, like in this competitiveness frame, or you can say this is great. You know, we now have other countries helping to play a role in covering the costs of the clean energy transition. Um, so I do think that, you know, institutions like this can be really valuable to continue um, to really think of different angles at getting at the the climate challenge of course clean energy innovation being one that i look at and, and one that i think is particularly important um, but certainly not the only one joanna thanks for talking of course it's been a pleasure today's guest has been joanna lewis associate professor of energy and environment at georgetown university visit the climate center for energy policy website for more energy and climate policy news and research our web address is climateenergy.upenn.edu, and our Twitter feed is at Climate Energy. Thanks for listening to Energy Policy Now, and have a great day.